And if you've got a Bible to hand, you might like to turn to page 951 to Zechariah chapter 2. Now, I'm aware it's a couple of weeks uh, since we're in Zechariah 1, uh, so let's just remind ourselves of what's going on. Uh, The Jews, or some of them at least, have returned from exile and are now back in Jerusalem, though under the rule of the Persians. Uh, But they have returned to a city that is in ruins. And the temple in particular has been destroyed. And after an initial attempt uh, to rebuild the temple, the work had ground to a halt through opposition and lack of will. And so God sends Zechariah, uh, Haggai as well, as prophets to call on the people to get on with this work of rebuilding the temple. And so in Zechariah 1 we first of all hear uh, God's call to his people, return to me and I will return to you. You see they needed to come back not just to Jerusalem but to come back to the Lord. That's what the temple symbolised, their relationship with him. And then last time we saw that despite the appearances of the Jews being under the control of the Persian superpower, the reality was that the Lord was in control and he would comfort his people and he would overthrow even the strongest of powers. And how would that happen? Well, at the end of chapter 1, it will happen through those four craftsmen. It will happen through the building of the temple, people getting on with serving God. So no wonder then that at the start of chapter 2 and in this third vision that Zechariah has, he sees a man who is eager to get cracking. Verse 1, I looked up and there before me was a man with a measuring line in his hand. I asked, where are you going? He answered me to measure Jerusalem, to find out how wide and how long it is. He's got his tape measure out and he's starting to work out what needs to be done and where, how big's the the scale of the problem, where where will they need the bricks and how many. And yet before he can get going with this uh, building work, another angel arrives uh, with a message for him. See verse 3, the angel who was speaking to me left and another angel came to meet him and said to him, run, tell that young man, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of men and livestock in it. And I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord, and I will be its glory within. See, before they get cracking, before this building work starts, they need to have the big picture of what they're working towards. And so in this vision, God makes three promises about the future for Jerusalem. The promise of God's presence, that he will be with them, the promise of God's protection, that he will look after them, and the promise of God's people, that he will choose them from all nations. Uh, Headings that you'll see on the handout there that I hope you have a copy of. See, uh, for them, it is seeing their future that will help God's people to serve him in the present. And of course, that's why this is a chapter for us as well, uh, because this is our future. And so these promises should still motivate us to serve God in the present day. And yet some of them do seem rather confusing, don't they? When do they refer to? When do they get fulfilled? What do they really mean? For instance, the message comes that Jerusalem is to be a city without walls. 
Yet what happens as soon as the temple is rebuilt? Well, Nehemiah is going to come along, sent by God, to rebuild the city walls. Strange, isn't it? Or here the message comes that all nations are going to be joined with the Lord and come into Jerusalem. And yet again, after the temple gets rebuilt, what happens next? Well, Ezra comes along and all the foreigners with whom the Jews have intermarried in exile are going to be excluded, kicked out. So what then does this vision really mean? Is it just a nice picture that Zechariah saw one night but was never really going to get fulfilled? Well, no, I think to understand it, we need to work out where Zechariah was and where we are. So on the other side of the handout, there are a couple of uh, little diagrams that I hope will uh, help. Now you'll see at the top there that for Zechariah, it's as though he's standing in front of a series of four mountains. Now the mountain immediately before him, the small one, labelled Zech for Zechariah, is his present circumstances. The big issues that he faces. And what are those? Well, there's the big issue that there's no temple, a problem that needs God's presence. Uh, There's opposition, a problem that needs God's protection. And there's a lack of distinctiveness, of holiness among the Jews, a problem that needs God to establish his people. That's because of his immediate situation that God gives these three promises. But in giving them, God doesn't just show how they're going to be fulfilled in the near future, in the immediate future, uh, but also how they'll be ultimately fulfilled in Jesus and consummated once and for all in the new creation, the new Jerusalem. Only because Zechariah is in front of all of those things, actually he sees those four stages uh, sort of collapsed into a single view. He gets one snapshot of the whole lot together. Not so for us. Below, uh, you'll see uh, that in reality, these promises are fulfilled in stages. Yes, there's what happens uh, around Zechariah's time, but then Ezra and Nehemiah will come along in the next generation. Ultimately, it's in Jesus uh, that these promises of God's presence and protection and forming his people uh, will be fulfilled. Now, for us today, of course, we still await the final consummation of it all when Jesus returns and the new Jerusalem begins. Now when we see that, it it makes sense of of some of these promises here. Zechariah is told that Jerusalem will be a city without walls because ultimately it, it will be. No wall could encompass God's people today. Christians are scattered across the globe. And we look ahead to the day in the new creation where God's people will be without number from every nation and tribe. So in the near future, when Nehemiah would come along, it wasn't that he was wrong to to rebuild the city walls. It's what God had told him to do. But no, that was just the first stage in this process of strengthening God's people so that they could become a light to the nations and so that a number uh, uncountable would come in. Well, do take away that uh, to think about it later, and in the table particularly, you'll see how some of these different stages show themselves in fulfilling God's promises. Uh, But for us now, we need to be thinking, how do these three promises motivate us today uh, as we look back to see them fulfilled in Jesus? 
and as we look ahead to their ultimate fulfilment still to come. And the first there is the promise of God's presence. Run, tell that young man, verse 5, I will be its glory within, declares the Lord. And then later verse 10 as well, Shout and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for I am coming, and I will live among you, declares the Lord. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. I will live among you, and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. See, these were people who knew what it was like not to have God's presence with them. They've been in exile, thrust away from God, living each day surrounded by the reminder that they had rebelled from him and faced the consequences. They knew that to be without God's presence was to be without joy and without strength. And so they wrote, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? Psalm 137 there. See, they knew what it was like not to have God's presence with them. And yet now they hear these words of promise. I am coming and I will live among you, declares the Lord. Jerusalem restored and God the glory within it. The glory within. It is God's presence that would make their city great. It's striking, isn't it? I don't know if you think if Sheffield is a great city. I had a quick look on Thursday at our city council website. This is what it says on their homepage. Sheffield is a great place. You'll soon realise why we're so proud of our city. We just love it. What's more, we're pretty sure you will too. Electrifying entertainment, exciting events and astounding attractions are bound to get you hooked. Or maybe you'll fall for our parks and woodlands. After all, we're five miles from the glorious scenery of the Peak National Park. You're certain to find something to tempt you here in Sheffield, even if it's just the warm Yorkshire welcome. There you go. Concerts and trees and smiling people. The glory of Sheffield. But God's presence is the glory of Jerusalem. Now, don't get me wrong, I love living in Sheffield. And anyway, we're not trying to turn Sheffield into Jerusalem. No, rather, it is the church today that is the place of God's presence. Not any building, but the people, as God lives in us by the Holy Spirit. But here's the question, is he our glory? Do we crave God's presence? Do we long to know him better, to see him more clearly, to follow him every day? If we don't, then we have forgotten what life is all about. We've forgotten what eternal life is all about. How does Jesus describe it? This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's why in Revelation 21, that great picture of the new Jerusalem, we see that statement that in the new Jerusalem there is no temple, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple, God fully dwelling with his people. That's what we're looking forward to. That's what this promise is. We should crave God's presence, as Zechariah did. 
and his presence with us should be our glory. I wonder how you describe Christchurch forward when people ask you about the church you attend. I guess it would be easy to slip into talking about the programs we run or the numbers who attend as though those were our glory. When instead we should be pointing people to the God who is at work in us, who saves us, who knows us, who loves us. He is our glory. Is that how we think and speak? See, this man with the measuring line, he needs to stop and see this big picture of God's promises before the building work continues. So too, we mustn't rush ahead, busying ourselves with church activity, and yet in the process losing sight of what matters most, this promise of God's presence. Well, then next we get the promise of God's protection. Verse 4 again. Run, tell that young man, I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord. City walls, of course, are for protection. They're they're to keep enemies out. And yet here the Lord himself will be the wall for his people. A wall of fire, indeed, ready to destroy any who attack. And verse 8 promises just such a destruction, doesn't it? after he has honoured me and sent me against the nations that have plundered you. For whoever touches you touches the apple of his eye. I will surely raise my hand against them so that their slaves will plunder them. Now these nations who have carted Israel off into exile will be defeated because they have touched the apple of God's eye. Now I know when we use the phrase, uh, the apple of someone's eye, it sort of conjures up a a picture of a doting grandfather, doesn't it? In in whose eyes his grandson can do no wrong. Uh, But in Hebrew, I understand that the phrase really means the middle of your eye. It's the pupil. It's saying that to mistreat God's people is like poking God in the eye. I don't know how you react when a little fly gets in your eye. It's unfairly dramatic in trying to get it out. Uh, Well, here God will do anything to to stop it. He won't let it happen. He will swat these nations away. The promise of God's protection. Of course, for us today, where we are in this mountain range, we can look back to Jesus and see the way that God defeats our enemies. As on the cross, he forgave our sins, having cancelled the written code, the law that stood against us, having disarmed the spiritual powers and authorities. Sin, death and Satan dealt with once and for all. And so remembering that, remembering what Jesus has done, we also look forward to a future that is secure and certain. A future with him in God's presence. Because Jesus promises that he will lose none of those the Father has given him, but will raise them up on the last day. See, that's the promise. But will we trust it? And will we live by it? For Zechariah and people in his day, it would take courage to trust God's protection in the face of Persian dominance and local persecution. For us... Will we trust God or will we fear the world 
Now, maybe the pressures on us won't be as acute as they were here, although certainly there are places in the world where Christians face imminent threats of persecution, injury and arrest because of their faith. Now, we should be praying for them that they would have this clear a vision of God's protection on them so that they will stand. But even for us, I wonder if there are times when we don't obey God as we should because we fear what the consequences will be for us if we do. It might be that we don't try to tell people close to us about Jesus because we're afraid of damaging our relationship with them. Is that the thinking of someone who knows that God is a wall of fire around his people? Or in the midst of a credit crunch, it might be that we don't obey God as we should in the area of generosity, giving and sharing what we can, because we fear for our financial security. It may be that instead of relying on God for protection, instead we hide behind walls of our own making. As a church family, it would be easy to retreat from the world, hiding behind our activity together, hiding inside our buildings, these walls, hiding within our our own little Christian community, and so never venturing out into the world, never putting ourselves at risk. Now this promise, the promise of God's protection, brings a comfort, but it also brings a challenge. Because along with it comes the call for us to live without walls. Trusting in God alone, not our own strength. Trusting him enough to go anywhere and do anything that will honour him. The promise of God's protection. And then finally, on the handout there, the promise of God's people. Run, tell that young man, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of men and livestock in it. Verse 11 as well. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. Uh, Just remember how pathetic the people in Jerusalem must have seemed. Tiny in number, enslaved to another nation, uh, their homeland in ruins. And yet here, as Zechariah gets a glimpse of that mountain range, he sees that they're part of something immense. Something that will incorporate all nations and will involve too many people to count. They might be small, but they are the Lord's inheritance, verse 12. And he chooses them. He chooses his people and will make them great. Imagine back then, it must have been easy to to finish a hard day's work rebuilding the temple, uh, joints aching, blistered hands, and to look around and say, what's the point? We're like a drop in the ocean. We're having no impact at all. And we can feel that too, can't we? Oh, I know you you may come along uh, here on a Sunday and think, oh, we're doing well as a church. We're pretty full, we're lively, there's lots going on. But that is a false confidence and a false pride. After all, what does it mean that we're full other than that we fit the size of this particular building? If we started meeting at Hillsborough Stadium, 
uh, we wouldn't feel full, would we? We'd feel tiny. And if we think not about the people who are here, but the hundreds of thousands who aren't, we won't feel full, will we? Half a million people in Sheffield today for whom it didn't even occur to them this morning that God is real and that through Jesus we can know him. So what then? Do do we give up? Do we throw in the towel? Do we settle for what we've got? Well, it could be worse. No, we look to this promise. A promise that in the new Jerusalem there will be people beyond number from every nation numbered like the stars in the sky or the sand and the seashore. And trusting that promise, we realise that you get to that future one new Christian at a time. In chapter 4, verse 10, which we'll come to in a couple of weeks, the Lord says this, Who despises the day of small things? See, it may look small when you have... uh, a conversation about Jesus one day with one person. It may look small when, as a congregation, we plan for a church plant, one new church in one of many cities, in one of many countries. And it is small. But God's promise here is that it is part of something unimaginably big, something unstoppable, something eternal. Because the Lord is at work. Verse 13. Be still before the Lord, all mankind, because he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. He has roused himself. He has made these promises and now he will fulfill them. So as we finish and as we think about those three promises, what are we to do about them? Well, just notice the two commands that come there in verse 8 and verse 10. The first is to come. Come, O Zion, escape, you who live in the daughter of Babylon. See, God is saying, don't miss out. Don't miss out on this vision, on this future, on these promises. Come to him. Come out of the world and its rejection of him. Return to the Lord. It may be that you've been drifting away from God. It may be that you've always been adrift from him. That you've thought you could do without his presence with you. That you've looked to yourself and not him for protection. That you haven't bothered to be part of his people. Well then come to him now. Come to him afresh. Turn to Jesus. Trust his death on the cross where these promises are kept and then look forward with confidence to what lies ahead. Come. That's the first command. And the second, if you are trusting, if these promises are yours today, is there in verse 10. Shout and be glad. Rejoice in what God has done for you, in what he has in store for you. That great city that we see in Revelation 21, where God's presence is perfected, the Lord Almighty and the Lamb, its temple forever. Where God's protection is permanent, 
the gates of the city, never needing to be shut. And where God's people are complete. The kings of the earth bringing in their splendour. Let us pray together.